uh, I wanted to start this morning. We're actually in our series in Matthew. We are going to, uh, we were just in Matthew chapter 2 a couple weeks ago, and we're going to fly right over chapter 3 and go to Matthew chapter 4. Now, does anybody know what happens in Matthew chapter 3? Does anybody know what happens in Matthew chapter 3? It's just before Jesus goes into the wilderness and is tempted. Do you know what happens just before that in the book of Matthew? John's baptism is introduced, and then Jesus is baptized by John. Now, there's a lot to be said about that that I'm not going to try to tell you all about right now, but I want to tell you one thing about it. At the very end, the very last verse, there is something that happens that I think strengthens Jesus for the temptation in chapter 4. So if you could know one thing that would strengthen you sometime if you might be facing temptation. Do you ever face temptation? Are you ever sometimes tempted to do things that you really shouldn't do? Maybe? Yeah, come on, I've talked to your folks. I, yeah, sure you have. I have. I am. And, and so if you could know one thing that even happened with Jesus that strengthened him to be ready to resist that temptation that was coming. Wouldn't you like to know what it was? Would you like to know what that is? This morning, I'm going to tell you what that one thing is that God did for Jesus just before he was tempted. You remember the last thing that happened at Jesus' baptism? This voice out of heaven, and God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Do you think when the enemy comes along and one of the, he, he tries to suggest to Jesus that God has forgotten him, that God really doesn't care, that God is not going to provide for him, that he's out there on his own, he's going to be hungry, and he should listen to the enemy, he should listen to the devil. That's the devil's lie. But God has already reminded Jesus in front of everybody that Jesus is God's beloved son who he loves and with whom he is well pleased. Now, if you are God's child, if you also believe in Jesus, have been saved by him, if you believe in Jesus as your savior, you also are God's beloved that God loves you. So remember that in the midst of other things you face in life, in the midst of temptations, remember this one thing, that God loves you so much that he gave Jesus for you. God does love you, and God, is, God delights in you. God is thrilled about you. Sometimes your parents will get a little frustrated with you, but God is delighted with you, okay? God loves you. So remember that in the midst of anything anybody else might tell you about God, remember, he loves you. He's delighted with you, okay? That's the same thing God told Jesus before he headed off to the wilderness. So now as you head off to the wilderness of your kids' lesson time, remember that. God loves you. He's delighted with you. And there goes a the guy still not ashamed to wear his Seahawks gear. Isn't that good to see? <sighs> All right. Well, it was a sad afternoon yesterday, but uh, kind of through the season, we kind of saw it coming sooner or later, didn't we? 
Not a terrible surprise, just terrible. Now, Matthew chapter 4 is one of those chapters that is clearly for you. It is directly to you. It is especially about you. How do I know? This one, more than perhaps some others, this one is for you because I know this. Paul tells a church, not unlike our church, in 1 Corinthians 10, he tells them, no temptation has overtaken you or you or you individually. No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man, common to humanity, common to the human experience. You're not the only one to be tempted, but you will be tempted too. If temptation is common, it's something that we all experience. And falling to temptation is something that we all experience. The failure in it and the disappointment with ourselves and the frustration and in some subtle way or Behind the scenes, maybe an anger at God. Why did you let this happen again? Why did you let me to fall again? Because we do pray. Lord, lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from evil because this is real. This is in the midst of where we live. What if I could tell you there are things that you can know, things that you can practice that will help strengthen you in the midst of temptation. Things that you can do as we look into this section in chapter 4 where Jesus is led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness so that for the purpose that he will be tempted. And God doesn't send him there because God wants to just, we'll see, let's see what happens. He sends him there in order that he might show us also Jesus' victory because he is the sinless son of God. And also, in Jesus, we can also experience that same victory. We can follow our Lord. We can do as he does, and we can, we can go to battle against the enemy. We're going to see a theme arising through Matthew that we'll actually unpack a little bit more once we finish with this series through Matthew because some things are going to be raised regarding an ongoing battle we have with the evil one. There has been a battle pitched against the God of heaven and this evil usurper who would dare to try to take his authority and would be happy to use us as collateral damage. If he cannot get to God, he will get to those whom God loves. That's you. And yet in Christ, we can be part of that glorifying victory against the enemy. One temptation at a time. Imagine it. One answer to the enemy at a time. One defeat of the enemy at a time. Imagine that. Today you will be tempted. And imagine in the midst of that temptation, you can honor God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you, and the angels in heaven applaud. Well, you can't hear it. You know, when the air is this cold, it, it tends to cut down on the transmission of sound, and then the snow absorbs this. You can't hear the applause, but it's there. Heaven is delighted as God is glorified in the victory of the saints against the evil one. How do we get there? Are you interested? Are you in?
The Holy Spirit is going to lead Jesus into the wilderness, into an inhospitable place, a place of cursing rather than blessing, a place of barrenness rather than fruitfulness, and yet Jesus will be fruitful there. The Holy Spirit is going to lead him into a place of fasting, self-denial and hardship, a place of temptation by the enemy. Sometimes God does lead into daily want. Sometimes God leads into hard places. I want to begin with just a word about fasting. Fasting is the exercise of the muscles of self-denial, something that Americans are not very good at. We could learn something from that, the practice of fasting, of self-denial. It's, it's self-denial for the pursuit of something greater. Fasting is not commanded in Scripture so much as it is assumed. It is assumed that maybe part of taking up our cross Denying ourselves, taking up our cross and following him, maybe it's assumed that fasting, a self-denial of some form or another, is part of that. There are times of specific spiritual focus and concentration that we fast. We will deny ourselves of other things, even that the hunger reminds me of something that I'm remembering to focus on. It's not to earn anything or to prove anything to God or to earn God's approval, but to practice, as Paul says, buffeting my body and making it my servant for righteousness, for the pursuit of God. Also, we're going to be looking at this occasion of Jesus' temptation. And Jesus is tempted in all things as we are and yet without sin. But his temptation in his humanity is still very real. We learn something about how the enemy applies his deceit, how he applies his lies to the needs of humanity through these experiences, this interchange with, with Jesus. And whether it's, it's natural appetites like food or sex or social needs like recognition or approval, whether it's ambitions of success, accomplishing our goals or possessions or wealth, whatever shape the temptation comes, the enemy knows what humans need, and he uses it against Jesus as God's son, and he uses it against you. Now, you wonder, was this temptation against Jesus real? If Jesus cannot sin, is the temptation against them, him then real like it is to you or I? Let me give you the example of a submarine. A submarine has a test depth that after they have engineered the submarine and uh, they have built it and they put it all together and it's ready to go, before they hand it over to the Navy, they take it out for its test uh, cruise. And in that test cruise, one of the things they do with the engineers on board, how'd you like that for job accountability? With the engineers on board, they take it down to test depth. Now the test depth is deeper than it should ever go in its normal operation. And so all of that's classified. But the, the submarine is engineered so that it will survive going much greater below than even its test depth. The test depth simply proves that it's safe. Nobody gets on a submarine and says, okay, let's take her down to find out how low can she go. You don't do that. You know it's not going to fail before you ever take it there. Does that mean that the pressure isn't real? Does that mean that the pounds per square inch of the ocean pressing in on that metal canister at that point is not real pressure just because you know already that the sub will not give? No. 
That's a reflection not of a lack of pressure, but of the strength of the hall. So the issue here is not a lack of temptation. Is that real or not? It is very real. It's the best of it, in fact. But this is a demonstration of the strength of our Savior. Strong for himself so that he can be strong for you. He has been tempted as we are in all things so that he is able to come to the aid of you who are tempted. There's the benefit for us. Let's jump in then. Let's look at these ways that the, that the enemy tempts Jesus, which are not unlike. There are some similarities to how he tempted Eve in the garden so long ago. It's not a, a surprise that Jesus is called the second Adam from above, as the song says, who, who reinstates us in God's love. First of all, in, in Matthew chapter 4, I'll read verses 1 to 4. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Note the similarities, Adam and Eve, who saw that the fruit was good for food. There's a contrast from the curse. No longer in a garden or in a wilderness. No longer is it good food, but it's rocks. To a human desperately hungry, those, storm, those stones might look like bread rolls ready to be buttered. But they were not. Could it be the things that look good to us? Because our hearts long for more than this world is. Could it be things look good for us because we know it's supposed to be better than this? Things look good to us, but they're not. See, in a sense, living in this world, living in a broken world is like living in the wilderness. We are fasting. It was meant to be much better than this. And it will be much better than this. So we will wait through the wilderness. We will trust our God in the midst of this broken world which is wilderness. Even though some things might look like something they're not, we'll not give ourselves to them. The enemy says, if you are the Son of God, if you are able to do it, then do it for yourself. What is temptation here? He says, he seems to imply God has forgotten you. Here you are, you're hungry. Well, if you're the Son of God, you could just take those rocks and make them bread, right? Why don't you? Is there anything inherently bad with Jesus making food out of nothing? He does that later to feed 5,000, and we call it a miracle. It's wonderful. Look what God has done. Oh, why couldn't he do that here? He doesn't need 5,000. He needs five. And yet he does not. You see, the Word of God is never self-serving. God's command to you or I, God's word to you or I, is never merely self-serving. If we can take and adjust God's word merely to serve ourselves, there must be something wrong. No, God's word will glorify him. God's word will extend mercy and grace to others. God doesn't merely serve himself in the declaration of his word or even of his miracles. 
Satan suggests that Jesus has been left on his own to act on his own, and he whispers the same thing in your ear. God has forgotten you. God does not see. God has left you out there, and it doesn't even care. You, if you're, you're going to need to take this into your own hand. You're going to need to do it for yourself. God helps those who help themselves. That's somewhere in Proverbs, right? No, it isn't. We have responsibility to look after ourselves. But the enemy is twisting God's word. First of all, he's denying the fact that God even cares at all. If you can do this, then do it for yourself. But what? Jesus has already been walking by the Spirit. It was the Spirit that led him into this wilderness. It's the Spirit that led him into this fast. So now to do what he could certainly do, there's nothing absolutely wrong in the suggestion, but to do that would be to deny what God by his Spirit has led him in his humanity into. So he's either going to walk by the Spirit or he's going to walk by the flesh, and so are you and I. And sometimes walking by the flesh seems to make sense. It makes sense in our head, in our fleshly head. But we will end up doing our own thing to serve ourselves rather than what it is that God has set before us. Jesus' reply is, it is written. Three times he answers the tempter from the book of Deuteronomy. One of the reasons this was a good week to have the Gideon share with us is because this is a week where we're reminded ourselves of how firm a foundation he saints to the Lord he has laid for your faith in his excellent word. This is what we need. It is written. Three times he's going to answer from the book of Deuteronomy as the final authority that God's word is the final authority against our intentions, suggestions, or desires. God's word trumps any personal matter of choice. And God's words says this. God's word here is more than just a phrase out of context. It seems to fit the situation. Man shall not live by bread alone. Okay, that works, all right, but still Jesus does need some bread, right? But where did that quote come from? What's happening in Deuteronomy where he pulls this quote from in Deuteronomy, I think it's chapter 8 and verse 3. This is where Moses is reminding the people that God led you into a wilderness. And there in the midst of that wilderness, he gave you manna from heaven. He provided for your need day by day. Not any extra, day by day. The day before the Sabbath, he gave you extra and you collect double and it doesn't rot. Every other day, just enough for the day. So that you would know, Moses says, that man does not live by bread alone. By bread merely, God is not denying that you need bread. But the God, man lives by the word, the promise of God, the care of God for us. He's the one that gives us not merely bread, but our very breath. So Jesus is saying more than merely finding a way to get our bread, if we follow God, he will provide for us, even as he provided for a whole nation in the midst of the wilderness. So Jesus is affirming God's character, who God is and what God has done in the past, how that strengthens him in the midst of a challenge today. There are many things we want. There are things we think we need. Marketing is very effective. It entices us, but God will provide. It's easy to work for more, to want more, to get what we're told we need, and yet to neglect the things that God has for us and for us to do in order to get there. We'll work a few more hours. We'll get a little bit of overtime. 
We'll, we'll be able to have this or that or whatever it is that we're convinced our family needs and yet. We probably in this wilderness don't need all that we're told that we do. We are the richest people in the world and it will never be enough. It's kind of like, you know somebody that has a boat? How, how big of a boat is big enough? For most people... A boat that's big enough is a boat that's just a little bigger than the one they have, okay? Now, I pick on boats, not just to pick on boats. My father-in-law had a boat for several years, and each time he got a new boat, he got bigger and bigger and bigger. So he finally gave up on the whole, on the, on the whole deal. It's probably a good move. Now, I've got friends right in here in the church to tell you I'm not picking on boats. i got friends that, that when it was time to get a new boat, they got a smaller boat. Good move. All of us could do with some of that. We could do with a little smaller boat, folks. We really could. We would, we would be fine. We do not need all the things that we're told that we do. Who do you think you are? This, the enemy tells Jesus. If you're who you say you are, then let's see it. Go ahead. Act for yourself. The gospel acts for others. Jesus' explicit trust in God the Father and in his word leads into a second temptation. Is that what, is what the Bible says really true? Oh, you're going to start quoting the Bible. Okay, well, the enemy can play that game too. Look what he does next. Look at verse 5. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple, a very high point of the temple, overlooking the valley down below. And he says to him, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he, God, will command his angels concerning you Oh, and it also says, on their hands they will bear you up lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now that seems pretty particular. That seems very specific. That seems to speak directly to the situation at hand. You can do this because God's word says that if you were to fall, that he is going to command his angels concerning you. They're going to bear you up. They will keep you from hitting the ground so that you will not strike your feet against a stone. So whatever you do, Jesus, jump feet first. As long as you jump feet first, you have got a promise from God that it cannot turn out bad. Hmm. That seems like a gotcha. As it is with Eve, Satan questions what God has really said. You see, the verse he quotes, Psalm 91, verse 11 and 12, it's always good to look at those cross-references in your Bible. Where did this come from? What does it say there? And what's the bigger context? Because in this verse that the enemy quotes, there's a phrase that he slyly leaves out. You know what it is? He will, give his, he will command his angels concerning you to keep you in all of your ways. This is one of those proverbial providential promises that says that God is going to look after you in all of the things. Day to day as you're walking along, he's got you in his hands. He lifts you up. This is not a, 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 a blank check. Go ahead, test the Lord when you want to. This is not the go ahead, jump in front of a bus just to see what God will do. This is God knows your comings and your goings. You're, you're, you're going out and you're coming in all the ways and all your days. He keeps you. It's a proverbial providential promise. Like a proverb, a promise of God's providential care in all of our situations rather than an invitation to put God to the test. 
And so Jesus answers it that way. Again, it is written, or it's also written, comparing Scripture with Scripture, yeah, but you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, a verse from the wilderness experience where the people came in, and in the midst of the wilderness, they said, we don't have any water. Why, God, have you led us out here to die? Had God led them out there to die? No, God told them he was leading them out there that they could live. He was bringing them out of bondage into freedom. He was bringing them out of slavery into a new life in a new land, a land full of promise, flowing with milk and honey, a land of great and abundant blessing, if only they would believe him. They said, why have you let us out here to die in the wilderness without any water? We had water when we were in Egypt. We had water there from the Nile. Here we have to rely on God. Huh. And that was the point when, remember, God told Moses, take your staff, your staff of judgment, and strike the rock. And when you strike the rock, water is going to flow out of that rock. That in itself is a picture of Christ there. The staff of God's judgment is going to strike Jesus, and from him will flow rivers of living water. But keeping in that wilderness picture, Moses reminds them of that when he tells them, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. In, in the midst of not believing that God is really going to do it. It's an evil and perverse generation that seeks after a sign. God, show me if you're really there. Believe him when he is promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. You don't have to put him to the test to see if he's, if he's there or not. The question is, where are you? Will you and I walk with him? Because he is here. He's never left. And he always will be. One takeaway from us here is to rightly understand the word of truth. Jesus shows us not to misuse a scripture out of context. Not The one does not contradict another. We don't just pull a quote out and wave it around as some individual promise all on its own. God's word reveals the character of God. It reveals who God is, what he is like, and what he is doing, and what he has promised to us. And we take it all together. This is our God his revelation of himself to us, to rightly understand. So Paul tells Timothy, do your best to present. That do your best is often, is, is often translated labor. Work hard at showing yourself an, an, an approved servant who doesn't need to be ashamed. This is an Awana verse, isn't it? A workman not ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. It's interesting that Satan stopped quoting at verse 12 because in Psalm 91, verse 13, you know what the next verse says? And the serpent you will trample underfoot. If you trust God's care in all your ways, you know what you're going to do? You're going to trample the serpent under your own feet. <laughs> no sense reminding Jesus of that, right? But that is exactly what Jesus is going to do. Study to show yourselves approved to God. Why? Know God's word. Know what it really says, not what somebody says that it says. Not even Bob. No. The Brians were, were a, a group in a particular town, and they heard the Apostle Paul preaching. They heard Paul teaching the scriptures to them, and they said, okay, we're going to listen. We're going to take it in. And then they were more noble than others, it says, because they then searched the scriptures to see if these things are so. You need your own. You need that you verse. You need your daily habit of reading. 
I say you need you verse. I, I, I prefer just uh, the good old print on a page. Maybe I'm old, but uh, the, the, the print on a page, and you can see this is a quote. It's indented differently. This, is, this comes from the Old Testament. I can look at a cross-reference. I can turn back there, and all of a sudden something new pops out at me that I hadn't realized before, and my heart thrills in recognition of something more about the character of God. Handle God's word well, and you also will trample the enemy underfoot. Thirdly, the next temptation, why make it harder? Okay, okay. All right, all right, all right. We're not going to put God to the test. But listen, why make it harder than it needs to be? God has given you something to do. God has given you a, a job to perform. God has given you his kingdom to establish. I can make that easier. There's an easier way to do it. Why make it harder than it needs to be? Now, there's a temptation we're, we're liable to fall to, right? Why make this harder than it needs to be? Have you ever been tempted there? Okay, I want to walk with God. I want to live for the Lord. But why make it harder than it needs to be? Why not just keep my head down? Why not just, uh, you know, avoid conflicts, avoid, uh, uh, you know, troublesome things, avoid stirring things up. I'll just keep quiet, lay low, live my own life, not make any trouble, and I'll not make this any harder than it needs to be. In fact, if I give in a little bit, if I give in just a little bit, then it can be a whole lot easier. There doesn't need to be any personal rejection. There doesn't need to be any personal pain. There doesn't need to be, Satan's going to say, any of this whole crucifixion thing. No, you don't need any of that. I can give you all that you want if you'll just join Frank Sinatra and do it my way. Okay? Look at verses 8 through 11. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these, all these kingdoms I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Oh, if you will only fall down and worship me. He has moved from ignoring God's word, do it yourself, Jesus, to tactic B, twisting God's word into a false promise, the angels will keep you from falling. To tactic C, now contradicting God's word. You instead just bow down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall, not, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Now it's out in the open. Now the cards are really laid out on the table. This is what temptation is all about. Who are you going to listen to? Who are you going to obey? Because the one that you obey is the one that you worship. The one that you obey is the one that you bow to. You know where we get our word obey? It comes from a word, a Greek word, obeisance. Obeisance has the idea of devoted service of worship. The one that you obey is the one that you worship. That's what the enemy now has put out on the table for us. This is what's at stake here. When we give into temptation, we are withdrawing from our worship of the Lord and we are actually giving the enemy something that he craves. Even if it's just for a moment, even if it's just for a bit, we are given the obedience that he does not deserve and has no claim to. 
any longer because you're free in Jesus. But that's what he wants. That's what he hungers for. That's the issue. Temptation is not just, oh, I really shouldn't, but I kind of like to. It's much more than that. You have an enemy behind the scenes that hungers for the worship that is due God alone. You see, our lives are being lived on a spiritual plane that we can easily be unaware of. But there's nothing in the step that we take, in the words that we say, there is nothing that does not matter to God in heaven. And everything is an opportunity to give him glory. So, our obedience is an act of worship. Temptation is a matter of who I will worship. Satan is going to bring this temptation back again. When Jesus describes his coming crucifixion later, Peter's going to say, no, Lord. And Jesus' response, get behind me, Satan. He knows where Peter's response originates. Avoid the cross. Don't go there. There's got to be another way. He will also make other paths look good to you, paths that are easier, paths that will cost you less. Many options seem good, but one is from God. If you're not sure yourself, why not, after prayerfully seeking guidance in God's Word, why not seek some trusted shepherding from others? You know, Americans, we are the great individualists. We do not do this well. We celebrate as a Baptist church the priesthood of all believers. There's not that anybody, you need to go through anybody to have a channel to God. No, no, you have access before the throne of grace. And yet, how do I know that I'm hearing God right myself? How do I know that I'm not being misled? Why not give ourselves to trusted shepherding? Let me let you in on a secret. Sometimes even our parents are not the best in terms of spiritual decisions of sacrifice. Why? Because parents don't want their kids to hurt. Can I let you in on a little secret? I don't really want Ruth and Kuda in Zimbabwe, in Harare. I really don't. If it was just up to me, I would say, no, come on, just come, come home. But it's not up to me. And it mustn't be up to me. And when our family went to Africa, my 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 father, who was an unbeliever, actually was more supportive and encouraging of us in that, quote, adventure in his eyes than my mom, who was a believer, because my mom saw the safety issues and, as moms will, wanted to protect us from those. So who can you also go to? I'm not saying don't go to your parents. Don't hear me wrong here. But for all of us, Get beyond the teen years for a minute. For all of us, who can you go to? Will you go to someone who you can have confidence? This is somebody who cares for me, but who cares for my spiritual best and my walk with the Lord. And I trust them in their walk with the Lord, in their knowing him and walking with him. And I can seek godly counsel from him. That's the purpose of pastors and elders within the church. And it's one of the requests, frankly, candidly, we get the least. We do not want to be a controlling church. There's been a shepherding model out there somewhere that says, do not make decisions without talking to the pastors and they will tell you what to do. That is not what I'm talking about at all. But I am happy to pray with you and search God's word with you. And as we pray and seek God's counsel in his word to share that with you on a spiritual basis of what I'm convinced. This is... This aligns with God's character as I understand it. This aligns with 
where God has been leading you. And to sometimes have somebody be looking at that with you outside yourselves can save us a whole bunch of trouble and pain. Now, before we leave this passage, there's one more thing I want to take note of. These temptations of Jesus, they are real. They're real for him because Jesus is real human. We talked about that before. He's no ordinary human. He's the sinless son of God. But that doesn't make him any less serious. That actually makes them all the more serious. If the enemy can get him to falter just once, he's no longer without sin. Everything is at stake here. If Satan can tempt Jesus to sin himself, he cannot die for your sin and mine. But Jesus' character and holiness as a son of God is also real. Just as the temptation is real, he is the one who is your savior because he is able to stand against all of the enemy's schemes. Your savior if you believe in him. Jesus is able to deliver us from the evil one because he was able to resist the evil one himself. Jesus has been there. He'll be there for you. The question is, what about you? Where will you be? Will you be in him? Having identified yourself with Jesus in his death for you, even as he identified himself with us in the baptism there in the Jordan, will you identify yourself with Jesus that his death is for me, his resurrection life then also is for me? If you are in Jesus, then will you walk by the Spirit or will you walk by this flesh? The way of the victory is to walk with the Lord in the light of his word, yielding to the Spirit, not fulfilling our own desires. Jesus, by resisting the devil's temptation for what he needed, for the affirmation of who he was, and even for the achievement of the kingdom, the achievement of God's intentions for him, he resisted the devil on each of these fronts. And in doing so, he actually received all those things that the devil offered. Think about it. Just after the devil says, hey, take this on yourself, provide some bread for yourself, just after that, what? Look at verse 11. The devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him just as God had promised. God did look after his son. God will look after you. God recognizes him as the son of God and by remaining sinless, he secures the ability to be the savior of humanity to accomplish all that his father had sent him to do. Not merely to establish his kingdom, but to welcome you and I, though we were lost sinners, to welcome you and I into his kingdom because of his forgiveness. Satan's way would have been this. Here's the kingdom, but there's nobody in it because there's nobody redeemed, because there was no cross. God's way was harder, and God's way was better. And God's way, through salvation in Jesus, includes you and I. That's our Savior. That's what he's wrestling with in that wilderness for you and I. And so we glorify him in return as we will walk then in his way. Because the devil can never outgive or outperform our God. You and I never need to give in to his empty enticements. Let's pray. Father, would you strengthen us? Strengthen us, Father, in the midst of temptations. Lord, I know that we face them. I know that we will face them this very day. We will leave this presence of corporate worship together. Lord, we'll gather soon for a meeting. We might be tempted there to assert our own way. 
Father, we will gather around family or friends later today. We'll be tempted there. We will see something on TV. We'll see something we drive by. Oh, Father, we pray the way your Son taught us to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but whenever you do, deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.